0: and through Joseph, is bringing his brothers to their lowest point. You see, God often uses circumstances, difficult circumstances in our lives, to remind us of our need for him and to tear down the idols that we have in our lives. And by idols, I mean those things in which we place our hopes and affections that rightfully belong to God. Those things aren't necessarily bad things. For example, Jacob's idol was his undue affection for Joseph, his son. I mean, sons are good things, and affection for your son is certainly a good thing as well. But Jacob's affection for Joseph was undue. It was out of uh, accordance with the rest of his uh, sons. And also, as we remember, if we remember back to chapter 37, when he loses Joseph, he refuses to be comforted. Certainly grief would have been an appropriate response to his loss of Joseph, but to re- refuse to be comforted is rebellion against God, ultimately. It's an assertion that he cannot be happy in the circumstances that God has allowed into his life. And we see that when he is stripped of Joseph, he does not relinquish that idol. He simply transfers that idolatrous affection from Joseph to his younger brother, Benjamin. And so we've already seen Uh, Jacob come to his breaking point, to his point of crisis. That was a a few chapters back when he had to be willing to give up Benjamin to go back to Egypt to get Simeon, who uh, Joseph has kept um, as sort of a hostage. And so at that point, Jacob had to be willing to give up both Benjamin and Joseph in order to see good happen for the rest of his family. Now, the brothers idols were different. They were most likely status and their own well-being. I mean, we saw that the main thing that irritated Joseph's brothers back in chapter 37 was that Joseph appeared to have higher status than them, even though he was older than them. And so the idols that they need to confront in their life are, are accepting their position and putting Benjamin and Jacob's well-being above their own in this situation where Joseph has put them. You see, as a good father, God will confront the idols that you and I have in our lives. I mean, one of the idols that has been one in my life is finding identity and value in my career. And because I have a good father who will not allow me to continue in idolatry, uh, guess what God did? He, in fact, took that away from me for a period of time not to needlessly inflict suffering on me, but to reorient me towards the only one from whom my value and identity actually comes. And so this is what God is doing to Jacob and to Joseph's brothers. God in his providence may restore some of those good things once we have been broken of our idolatrous fixation on them, but that's not a guarantee. We see, that, for example, that Jacob receives both of, or all of his sons back, even Joseph, whom he thought was dead. On the other hand, Judah receives some of what he had had back. He's restored to a position of, uh, well, he becomes Jacob's heir, but he doesn't receive all of the status that he had before. And then by contrast, Reuben receives very little. He is disinherited by Jacob. However, this is God's providence. This is God knowing what each one of his children may have without it becoming an idolatrous fixation in their lives. So while Joseph's brothers have been brought to a point of crisis, Joseph does not leave his brothers in this crisis, but he immediately identifies with them rather than holding on to his position as ruler over all of Egypt. He says to them right away, "'Is my father alive?' He's emphasizing his familial connection to them, their common father. And he says, Come near to me and do not be distressed or angry to assuage their fear of retribution, because after all, one might expect that Joseph would exact revenge on them for the grievous wrongs that they have done to him. But instead, Joseph reflects Christ as Jesus also identifies with us, especially in crisis. It reminds me of John 20 where Jesus says to Mary in a moment of crisis, Go to my brothers, that is the disciples, and say to them, I am ascending to my father and to your father. There he identifies with the disciples as brothers and to God as their common father. Also similar, Joseph reveals himself unexpectedly as a savior as Jesus also does. See, Joseph's brothers don't realize the depth of the crisis in which they've found themselves until it is upon them. And likewise, they don't realize the depth of the salvation that they need because they don't realize the depth of the crisis until they've walked into it. And Joseph must reveal himself to them because they don't, do not recognize him, just as we do not recognize Jesus as Savior. I mean, we may have an idea about Jesus, some kind of abstract idea, either as a historical figure or a great teacher— or even as God, but we do not recognize him as Savior until he reveals himself to us as such. Also, Joseph's brothers are right to fear him because while Joseph is in a position to save him, as a Savior, he also has the power to condemn them. If he has the power to save them, he must also have the power to condemn them, just as Jesus has the power to both save and condemn us. But instead of condemning his brothers, Joseph, instead, as we see in the next section, forgives his brothers. I'm going to read this section again, because there's much that's happening here. Starting in verse 4, Joseph said to his brothers, Come near to me, please. And they came near. And he said, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves, because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth, and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh, and Lord of all his house, and ruler over the land of Egypt. Hurry and go up to my father, and say to him, Thus says your son Joseph God has made me Lord of all Egypt. Come down to me, and do not tarry. You shall dwell in the land of Goshen, and you shall be near me, you and your children and your children's children, and your flocks and your herds and all that you have. There I will provide for you, for there are yet five years of famine to come, so that you and your household and all that you have do not come to poverty. And now your eyes see, and the eyes of my brother Benjamin see, that it is my mouth that speaks to you. You must tell my father of all my honor in Egypt and of all that you have seen hurry and bring my father down here. Then he fell upon his brother Benjamin's neck and wept, and Benjamin wept upon his neck, and he kissed all his brothers and wept with them. After that, all his brothers talked with him. So in this section, Joseph forgives his brothers. He takes neither of the two paths that we might expect him to take. He does not take the opportunity to take vindictive revenge against the actual and serious wrongs that his brothers have done him. But he also doesn't do the equally wrong, though less aggressive thing, which is simply to isolate and pull back and to put up walls against those who have hurt him. Instead, he reaches out in generosity and forgiveness, acknowledging that his brothers have done him wrong, but yet forgiving him. He says in verse four, "You sold me into Egypt," and yet he does forgive them. And while he goes to Benjamin first, he forgives all of his brothers. I mean, I could see him saying, "You know, Zebulun and Asher, I I forgive you guys. You uh, you sold me into Egypt, but it wasn't really your idea in the first place. You just kind of went along with it. But you, Judah, it was your idea to sell me into Egypt, and I'm just not ready to forgive that yet." And Reuben. You were really only concerned about me as a way to curry favor with Jacob. I, I'm, not, I'm not there yet for forgiving you. No, instead he forgives all of his brothers, regardless of the severity of their offense against him. It's important to look at how Joseph is able to forgive all the wrongs of his brothers. And one of the big reasons for this is that he has found meaning in the suffering that they have inflicted on him. In verse 8, he says, It was not you who sent me here, but God. Of course, it was his brothers who sent him here, but his brothers are what we call the proximate cause of his being in Egypt. They're the ones most near to causing him to be in Egypt. But the ultimate cause, as Joseph recognizes, for him being in Egypt is that God sent them here. God sent Joseph to Egypt, as he said, to preserve life, to prepare a way to save his brothers and God's people in the midst of famine. This reminds me of what Paul says in Romans 8.28. He says, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. So even, and perhaps especially, the evil things that others do to us Can be used by God for our good. And the knowledge that God is working for us should set us free from the evil that others do to us. And it should give us the power to forgive them as well. Now, we may not be able to see the good ends that God is working through those evil actions as quickly as Joseph did. It may transpire throughout the course of our lifetime. But even for Joseph, this was a 22-year arc, and I imagine that even at 21 years and 11 months, he was still probably not sure what God's purpose in these evil actions was. But nevertheless, he persisted. So Joseph forgives his brothers, but he also reconciles with his brothers. And those might sound like two sides of the same coin, but really they're distinct things because forgiveness is a one-way thing. It's from the person who was wronged to the person who has wronged you. And it's probably easier to forgive people who have wronged you when they acknowledge that they have done you wrong and perhaps apologize and repent for it. But whether or not they do that, we are called to forgive people. But what Joseph is doing goes beyond that and they're becoming... Reconciled their their relationships are being restored And joseph like jesus is the one who initiates the reconciliation He reaches out to his brothers And offers them a restored relationship with him Now all of us on this side of christ's return have never experienced any kind of relationships that are not marred by sin because all of us Are sinful But I think that relationships that have experienced suffering and wrong but have been reconciled are sweeter than those relationships that have never experienced such a thing. And in fact, I think that if you have any kind of deep relationship, like among siblings or between parent and child or husband and wife, that it's inevitable that you will experience those kinds of hurts from someone else. But... To have been in such a relationship and to have wronged someone, but instead of seeing them come at you with anger and retribution, or instead of seeing them move away from you towards isolation, but seeing them come towards you with forgiveness, that's a powerful thing. That's a picture of the outworking of the gospel, or to be in that relationship and to have been wronged, and instead of withdrawing, or in sort of, instead of lashing out, to move towards the other person with forgiveness. You know, there's uh, kind of an idea out there that if you uh, break a bone and it heals back cleanly, the, the healed bone is stronger than it was before the break. I don't think that's medically accurate, but it's a great analogy, so I'm going to use it anyway. But... Uh, <laughs> I think these relationships like this are sweeter and stronger because having gone through that that trial, that suffering, that being wronged, and then having to forgive or having to be forgiven, there's a sanctifying and a maturing process that occurs there. And as having come through that, both parties in the relationship are now more sanctified and more mature. And now you have a relationship between to more sanctified and more mature people. So I think even though the medical analogy may not hold, these kinds of relationships become stronger through the redemptive power of the gospel. Also, this is not an option for us. The Bible commands us to be reconciled to others. If we wish to be reconciled to God, we must be reconciled to others. In Matthew 5, Jesus says, so if you are offering your gift at the altar, that is, if you're engaged And your relationship with God. And there, remember that your brother has something against you. Leave your gift there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. So, Joseph here is reaching out towards his brothers in reconciliation. And we see in this chapter that there were many tears shed between Joseph and Benjamin, but I'm sure that there were many more tears shed in the days and weeks following among his brothers and among his father as. They acknowledged past wrongs as their lives came to the surface and as they had to forgive one another and reconcile. So Joseph does not just forgive his brothers. He does not just reconcile with them. But Joseph also saves them. See, they came to Egypt looking for sacks of grain. And of course, Joseph gives them sacks of grain. But Joseph also saves them from much more than they even sought deliverance from. You see, they had been suffering from alienation from their many years of scheming and wrongs and ills. Alienation from each other, from Joseph, from their father, and from God. They'd also been suffering from the guilt of their many sins over the years. They were not in a position to become the leaders of the 12 tribes of Israel. But by confronting their sin and offering forgiveness, Joseph is offering them salvation or God is offering through Joseph's actions, salvation for their past wrongs. Also, Joseph's brothers, like everyone else that he has encountered in Egypt, are blessed by their association with him. We see that Potiphar was blessed as Joseph oversaw his business affairs. The jailer of the jail that he was in was blessed. And of course, Pharaoh and all of Egypt was blessed as Joseph wisely administered the uh, seven years of plenty as the famine came. And so Joseph's brothers here too are blessed as they come into contact with Joseph in Egypt. Even Pharaoh offers them or follows up on Joseph's offer by saying, this is not even an invitation, this is a command. You must come to Egypt and I will give you the best of the land. Which is especially surprising because these are foreigners and the Egyptians of the time were not very fond of foreigners and especially not of uh, shepherds. The Egyptians were big into farming, but not so much into shepherding. So for Pharaoh to say to his brothers, come, bring all your livestock, and I'll give you the best land in Egypt, is a stunning uh, turn of events for them. So as I said at the beginning, the Joseph story is a microcosm of God's redemptive plan. When we think of a story like that, we think of you know, an innocent party, or when we think of a story in which justice is done and, and the ending is right, we think of an innocent party that's wronged or that's been oppressed. And then as the story progresses, that innocent party uh, receives recompense for what's been hap- happened to them, and the oppression is lifted, and of course, the parties who impose that get what they deserve. But that is not what happens in this story In fact, we see at the end of the chapter that instead of getting what they deserve, Joseph's brothers are showered with gifts by Joseph. And lest we forget, if we're going to identify with any characters in this story, if we're going to place ourselves in this story, we're not Joseph in this story. We're Joseph's brothers in this story. So Joseph showers gifts on his brothers. And interestingly enough, the gifts that he showers on them mirror the wrongs that they have done to him. It's almost as if Joseph is saying, Whatever wrongs that you did to me, and they were great, I'm going to do even greater good for you. So both Jesus and Joseph were stripped of their garments when they were unjustly taken. But Jesus says to us, just as Joseph said to his brothers, Here, you stripped me of my garments, but I give you a whole wardrobe. Both Jesus and Joseph were betrayed for a few pieces of silver. But Jesus says to us, just as Joseph said to his brothers, here, I give you many times that silver back. And, just, and Jesus and Joseph were both spurned by those who should have loved them and were sent away to a terrible place. But Jesus says to us, just like Joseph said to his brothers, Come, I want you to be near to me. I want you to dwell with me in the best of the land. This is the offer that Jesus makes to us. Will you accept it? Father, I thank you that throughout scripture, you make clear your redemptive plan and your offer of salvation to us, especially as is dramatically illustrated in the story of Joseph and his family. I ask that you would help us to accept by faith the offer that you make to us so that we may come and dwell with you in the best of the land forever. Amen.